everybody, and welcome back to our Bible study series on the book of Romans. And we have entered into what I'd like to call the anger arc. That part of this series where everybody listening is probably going to get ticked off at me, unless they are a doctrinaire Lutheran that already knows the stuff that I'm going to be saying. When we started touching on issues of election, predestination, issues of perseverance of the saints versus preservation of the saints. I'm sure that more than a few people were listening to this and getting well upset. And we're going to make that worse. <laughs> because that's what the Bible tells me to teach here is in Romans chapter 9. If you have your Bible handy, I would love it if you would open up to Romans chapter 9. And while you're turning there, let's discuss a little bit why I'm calling this the anger arc and why this is poking so many people in the eye. Up until this point, the past few installments of this series, we've been uh, poking at the Reformed, at the Calvinists, who have a very hard understanding of predestination and election and perseverance of the saints. We Lutherans believe that they unfairly take a priority on election when that is not the reason that you are saved. That is not the, the cause of your salvation and eternal life. Jesus is. So we have to put election in its proper place and see it as not, it's not the top priority for a Christian to know about it. But that said, now we have to take aim at, well, most Baptists and evangelicals. And that's, uh, that's going to, at first, make some people listening go, yeah, go get them. Go get them. I, I hate evangelical churches. Oh, I hate these mega churches. Well, I'm sure there's something for you to be mad about here, too. And now I do hope that everybody rejoices in what the Word of God is teaching, but it's, it's some tough lessons, especially for somebody who's born and raised in the United States of America, where I believe some deeply faulty theology has taken hold of a whole lot of our churches, and we have to address it. So with that said, let's go ahead and start reading here in Romans chapter 9, beginning in the first verse. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now, before we read any further, let's dig into this. St. Paul is distraught when he thinks about his own people, because he loves them. That is only natural, by the way, to love your own people. Otherwise, uh, if it was bad, if it was evil, if it was bigoted for St. Paul to love his own people, this would not be in the Bible. This would be considered him advocating for sin. If St. Paul can feel this way about his own people, so can you. And that troubles people. They literally just ignore it. I've never seen somebody who gets up on their modernist high horse, 
uh, try to reject these few verses. That said, it's also going to make people who already know that a little upset as well. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Why on earth would St. Paul say this? He could have just said, all right, now moving on to a different subject. We talked about preservation of the saints. We talked about how God is going to give us ultimate victory as the adoption of sons at the resurrection, the already but not yet nature of the kingdom of God. We talked about all that, but now it's time to start talking about the Jews. It's time to start talking about Israel and what exactly Israel is and what do you do with all this Old Testament precedent. And I almost wonder if this first verse where he's saying, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit, I wonder if St. Paul was accused of being a traitor. After all, here he is. He's not really following the Mosaic laws, at least not the Levitical laws. He, he can eat bacon. He hangs out with Gentiles. He has no issues here skipping the feasts of the Old Testament, you know, the, the cardinal feast days in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And instead, he's celebrating, well, Easter. He's celebrating the Passover, but with an eye to Christ. Everything's different now. The motivations are different. Many of the Pharisees, some of whom are probably in this congregation that he writes to, are going, are you, are you pretending to be a Gentile now? Are you going to take all of our history, all of our heritage, everything we've been through as a people, are you going to take all of that and throw that away on account of Jesus? What's going on here? Where is your identity? Where is your heritage? Where is your ancestry and your culture? You're, you're tossing that all aside. For what? And in this time, remember, St. Paul had to wipe the dust off his feet, kicked it right off, because he was tired of going to synagogues and getting, well, attacked, stoned to death, conspiracies against him to murder him. This is all over the book of Acts, and there's a point in which he says, fine, I'm just going to go to the Gentiles now. Given the reasons that he's writing this letter, first because they have questions about the real gospel. What is Christianity? Second, what's up with Jews and Gentiles? How do we see ourselves given the chasm of culture, race, heritage, everything that's between this? He's probably writing this after he kicked the dust off his feet and stopped going to synagogues. Now he has a reputation where somebody might accuse him of lying when he says that he cares for his own people. So he appeals to his clear conscience. His conscience bears him witness in the Holy Spirit. It's almost like he's swearing. Like, I solemnly swear to you guys, I'm telling the truth. Now, he's not taking an oath properly speaking here, but he's really emphasizing that the following stuff that he's going to be saying is 100% true. There is no denying it. So we move on to verse 2. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So St. Paul is miserable. He's saying, listen guys, I cross my heart and hope to die, 
I'm miserable because my brothers, according to the flesh, that is for St. Paul, his fellow Jews, they're not accepting Jesus. And he could almost wish, he said, I could wish, I don't think he's actually going all the way, but he said, I could almost wish that I was damned for all eternity if it meant saving them. This is how much he loves his own people. That's very, very important. For all those people out there who were accusing him of being some sort of traitor to his own people, he's saying, no, you don't get it. I would consider myself happy in hell if it meant that you got to go to heaven. Now, question for you, dear listener. Do you care about your own people that much? Do you care about them that much that you identify them as your people according to the flesh? your extended ethnic family, so to speak? Do you care about them the way St. Paul cared about his? And furthermore, are you willing to forgive them so much that you're willing to love them to that extent? What do I mean by this? St. Paul is saying that the same people who have this nasty habit of trying to kill him. Remember, there was a group that they swore to not eat until St. Paul was dead. They wanted to kill him that badly. St. Paul counts those criminals in the same overarching umbrella of his people, his kinsmen, and he forgives them, loves them enough to include those self-same would-be murderers and all of those persecutors in this group called his people, and he forgives them. He cares about them. This is Christ-like behavior towards one's own ethnic group. This is how St. Paul is dealing with this. Instead of saying, oh, cursed be everybody who ever hurt me and anathema upon them. And you know what? I don't care. I'm going to pray imprecatory psalms at them. And I'm going to hope that God squishes them. He doesn't say that. Instead, he prays for them. He hopes for their salvation earnestly. Now, don't get me wrong. There are times in which St. Paul does go off on his enemies. And yes, he does speak of uh, imprecation every now and then in the epistles, especially towards some of these enemies of his. But, however, comma, asterisk, his first priority is loving them and caring about them enough to say, you know what, I could wish that I was damned so that they could go to heaven. That's his first priority. Before any imprecation passes his lips, this is the first epistle of St. Paul that we have here, the book of Romans, and that's what he says about his kinsmen, who do not believe in Jesus Christ. Can you say the same for your kin, for your brothers according to the flesh? Can you forgive them for their crimes against you or against the church? Can you pray for them? Do you love them enough to say, oh my gosh, if, if all of these men were saved, that would be so much better, even if it meant that I went to hell. Can you say that? If you can, well, you have an apostolic attitude. But we continue on here in verse 4. More on the, the basis for why he cares about them so much. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. 
Now here, our dispensationalist friends are going to try to point to this as saying, oh yes, the entirety of the Old Testament and all of everything has to belong to modern day political Israel, because here's St. Paul saying that it all belongs to them. That's not the case, because there's other verses in this chapter that negate that idea. So what is St. Paul saying? Well, they are Israelites, meaning they belong to the initial country of Israel established by God, basically at the Exodus. Remember, the people of Israel, Israel being the name given to Jacob, who had 12 sons, who expanded into being a large group of people by the time they were enslaved in Egypt. Israel was basically inaugurated at the Exodus. That's when God says, okay, let's get you all up to Mount Sinai. We're going to give the law. We're going to have a covenant between you and me. We are going to ratify that covenant. You are my people. You are now this nation I am calling Israel. And he says, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. He's appealing to this shared history that he has with them. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. To their credit, St. Paul is saying, Jesus comes out of this line, the line of Judah, the chief tribe of Israel. Now, I'm going to ding the ESV severely, though, because the word belong, the, the phrase to them belong, is not in the text. It is simply a genitive uh, masculine plural here called hon, whom is. Genitive masculine plural, it's a personal relative pronoun. So if we read this more, uh, more accurately to the Greek, instead of saying to whom belong, it's who's the patriarchs or who's the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Who's the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Guess what? From whom ha Christos, on ha Christos, that's saying the same whose, whom, the same hon, plural, a pronoun there that you find in the Greek. Now, does Jesus Christ belong to people who don't believe in him? No, then neither can we translate any of this other stuff as belonging. Duh, they really should have done their homework a little bit better on this one. There is no verb there, present, past, or future, nothing in the aorist, which would tell us that there is belonging here. The emphasis is on shared identity. So what is St. Paul actually getting at? He's saying that we share all these things. I share this history with them. They were the Israel of God. They had the adoption, the glory, the covenants. We went through this as a people together in our history. We had the covenants, the giving of the law. Our people went through this and received this and worshiped God and received these promises. And whom? The patriarchs. Meaning, we had the patriarchs in our lineage, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But, but I will say that right now, the Old Testament belongs to the church, to the body of Christ. Scripture is not received by those who do not believe it, 
And if you do not believe what Scripture says, or if you have entire documents, long, long, long documents, trying to deny what Scripture says plainly, then it does not belong to you. It belongs to the people who truly have it by faith. And we're going to move on very soon discussing that. Why, yes, this really does belong to the church. But in verse 5, let's pay attention to something that's very, very, very nice. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Um, St. Paul is saying here that Jesus Christ is God. Christ, who is God over all. There is no escaping that. Some scholars will go, well, we're going to put a period there after the word Christ. In that way, we have a sentence that's incoherent. It just says, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Um, that doesn't make sense in the Greek. It doesn't make sense as a sentence. You don't start a sentence with, who is God over all, blessed forever, as a statement that would maybe work out as a question, but it's not a question. It is a single sentence where St. Paul says, Jesus Christ is God. So if anybody ever says, oh, well, the Bible doesn't say Jesus Christ is God, you point them to Romans 9 verse 5, which just comes out and says plainly that Jesus Christ is God. And it's there in the Greek. Now, before we move on to verse 6, I want you to notice something. St. Paul calls his fellow Jews, my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Becoming a Christian did not obliterate his identity as a Jew. It did not obliterate and erase his ethnic heritage, his culture, his history. Now, this is the apostle that writes, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And that's Galatians 3.28. We've all heard it a billion times whenever some well-meaning uh, dweeb out there claims that being part of the Christian church should completely erase your existence as an individual with a history, a culture, and a people. In Romans chapter 9, St. Paul is demonstrating that to not be the case. Galatians 3.28 is about soteriology, that everybody, regardless of who they belong to, regardless of their people, they have access to salvation in Jesus Christ. It is universally offered. Here, though, in Romans, he's saying that he loves his people, according to the flesh, distinctly, so much that he would be willing to go to hell for them. No other group is getting that treatment from St. Paul. No other group has that kind of love from him. I am telling you right now, the Bible does not demand you be erased as a person. And what do I mean by erasing? Well, if you take somebody, a, a normal human being, and you tell them, you are no longer part of a people, you are no longer part of a nation, all of your culture and history must now be replaced by something else. And that is now going to be your identity. You are being erased. They want to take away everything that helped make you into you. And they want to replace it with something better. How does this work out in the church? It's when somebody out there says the church needs to be your absolute everything. You can't have hobbies. You can't have a family. You need to invite other people that you don't know to watch your children at night and tuck them in. 
Yes, that really was said by a denominational leader among the Baptists. Whenever somebody says that everything that contributed to your upbringing is totally worthless, complete garbage, has nothing to do with you anymore because you're a Christian now, seems plain to me that these are some very unloving people who refuse to accept you as a human being until you have obliterated your personality, character, and heritage, and your family as well. These are some people who have no real Christian love in their hearts because they want you to qualify to their personal ideology before they're willing to admit you into the church. It's pretty ugly stuff, especially with other viewpoints they kind of hold, kind of don't want to admit they have, like God didn't love you until you were saved. And being saved means being part of the global village. Now you have to be completely transformed. And not transformed in the sense of sanctification where God makes you into a better you. No, transformed into somebody else. Somebody that is unrecognizable in any way, shape, or form to your former life. Even if you've always been a Christian. Now that you've come of age, you need to understand that you have to die. You have to be erased. You have to just kind of float there. And this isn't me denying that Christ bids us to come and die, to die to self. But that is not what these people have in mind for you. Christ bids you to die to yourself, to crucify your old Adam, take up your cross daily in penitence for your sins and in faithful obedience to God's word. Christ expects you to die to self, meaning to put yourself as the lesser priority over everybody else, especially the members of your own family and your church and your people. That's dying to self. This twisted understanding of it, of dying to self, in the way they want to present it is, there is you, God didn't like you. Now he wants you to be somebody completely different, a different person entirely, a divorced from anything you ever were. In fact, why don't we just have people start taking brand new names when they become Christians? Let's just have them stop talking to their fathers and their mothers and their sisters and their brothers and stop having contact with all their friends and have them legally change their name to something else so you can cut off everything in your history. Why don't we do that? So you're a better consumer. I mean, congregant. That's what they mean. Now, does St. Paul have this attitude? Absolutely not. He sees a vast group of unbelievers whom he is related to by blood and says, I love them. I want them to be saved because they are part of me. I come from them. We have the same cultural heritage. We have the same history that we went through. I would die for them. I would die for them in a heartbeat if it meant they were saved. That's the real Christian perspective on this. But that said, does Christ have to play second fiddle to your people? Is he your second priority after the well-being of your people? Are your people supreme overall? Absolutely not. Your Christian faith must come first. In fact, that is precisely what accomplishes the welfare of your people because, well... There is no welfare for your people if they go to hell. So Jesus must be the first priority in your life, period. In fact, let's get to that. In verse 6 here of Romans chapter 9, we continue, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. 
For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So, with all of this, St. Paul is addressing the question, did all these promises to Old Testament Israelites, according to the flesh, did, did those go by the wayside? Did God's word fail? Did he go back on his promises? And he says, no, it's not the case, because you have to realize that those promises do not belong to a particular ethnic group. Israel is now the church. Israel has always consisted of faithful believers in the Lord our God. How does he do this? How does he relate this? Well, he gives us some exegesis here. Not all who are descended from Israel, that is, according to the flesh, belong to Israel, God's Israel, his real chosen people, those who hold to faith in the gospel, those who trust in him for salvation. Because, he says, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. It's the promise. After all, Israel, they're referred to as Israelites, not Isaacites. When Old Testament says here, through Isaac shall your offspring be named in the book of Genesis, it's not saying that your kids are going to be named after Isaac. It's through Isaac. It's through this promise that God is regarding the seed. It's through Isaac, through that promise. It's hard to explain here, but St. Paul gives us that meaning. He literally interprets the scripture for us. He says plainly, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. A promise. Now, everything we have seen in the book of Romans tells us that you receive the promises of God by faith. Abraham is considered our father because of his faith. It is by the promise that we are children of God. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. God made a promise and he kept it. He kept going through Isaac's line to achieve the establishment of God's Israel, his chosen people, which is now the church. 
Remember, in context, St. Paul says in verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed. He's demonstrating such faithfulness on the part of God that God was willing to say, listen, there were two kids here, but I made a promise according to my word to Abraham that it was going to be through Isaac that I'm going to be building this church, building this ecclesia and congregation of people that ultimately will be called the body of Christ, the Christian church here on the earth. God is so faithful to this promise that while there were two children, Jacob and Esau, God chooses Jacob in accordance with this promise to build up the people that he knows will be Israel and the church. So, St. Paul is not talking about election in the Calvinist sense here. He's talking about a promise that God is keeping. When it talks about the purpose of election, his purpose of election might continue. If it was about prior decrees from eternity past, we wouldn't see a continuation of election. It is God keeping that word he made to establish what we have today to have a place in a line through which Christ comes and saves us. Now, there's a lot more to this. Uh, Romans 9 through 11 is extremely difficult to interpret, and the anger arc will continue based on that. However, we need to keep this in mind. This chapter here is neither supporting dispensationalism, nor Calvinism, nor neo-theology, let's call it, <laughs> the, the neo-theology that says uh, you must erase yourself. This is a sticky, sticky issue to be dealing with, and St. Paul is doing his best to relate that God is still faithful to his people because his people have always been those who had faith, and you belong to the promise by faith in remembrance of your baptism. But it's only going to get stickier from here because then St. Paul does kind of touch on issues of election and free will, which we will touch on next week, starting in verse 14. But until then, take a deep breath. Take a deep breath. This is all actually really, really, really good news. Really good news. You are not a second-class citizen in the kingdom of heaven. God does not consider one ethnic group to be the chosen people over another. He does not love one people group more than the other. Although we do see Jacobite loved and Esau hated, it is not in the sense of, I love these people descended from the flesh more than any other people descended from the flesh. You as a Christian are valued by God. He loves you. And on the flip side, while dispensationalism is rebuffed here, he is also going to rebuff the notion that just because you are a Christian means you cannot have a people anymore, that you can't be patriotic or have a nation to love. God is not going to say that. Because he loves you and because he understands where you came from, it is still perfectly legitimate for you, like St. Paul, to pray for your people. But we will get into more of that next week. Whew! More deep breaths, guys. Amen and amen.